Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 13th of January 2020 and this is episode 143. On today's podcast, I speak to Dr Anne-Marie Foster, lecturer in the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics at Queen's University Belfast, about her research investigating the ethical, legal and policy questions around families donating First World War items of former veterans and family members to museums. I interviewed Anne-Marie in her office. Anne-Marie, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, um, so my name is Anne-Marie Foster and I'm currently a lecturer at Queen's University Belfast. I became interested in the Great War several years ago when I actually started volunteering in a local military museum. So they had me just kind of cataloguing collections and sort of digging about in the archives, all of that sort of wonderful stuff. And I came across all of this kind of wonderful ephemera, so kind of like um, death memorials next to kin memorial plaques or dead men's pennies. And I was like, oh, I kind of want to work on this. I want to start writing on this. So I started very slowly. You know, I started writing about kind of family memorialisation and, and kind of why why people remembered the dead of the Great War in the way that they do. And actually, I'm writing a book about that now. So, um, you know, that is to come. But then I started thinking kind of more deeply. And I was like, well, how has all of this stuff ended up in the museum in the first place? Where does it come from? Why have people donated they're really personal items to kind of this institution that, that can hold it for them. So tell me about this research. The project that I'm mostly going to talk about today um, focuses on donations to regional museums in the 1970s and 1980s. Why, do you ask? Because it's kind of quite a niche thing to look at, really, um, isn't it? I do get that. So I started looking at the 1970s and 1980s and kind of why families are donating their personal items to regional museums and to regimental museums in particular, because it's kind of generally thought that there's very little interest in the First World War during this time. Um, So I know that obviously the WFA is founded in 1980. You know, it kind of has an original membership of 282 and kind of by the end of the decade, it's a few thousand members. But that's UK wide. We're not talking hundreds and thousands of people who are kind of really, really involved. You know, kind of public engagement with Armistice Day, it's massively decreasing during the period. And in general, regimental museums are kind of struggling to stay open. So that the curators kind of, they remember that they have to like throw away local histories, local regimental histories, because there's just so little interest that they can't actually sell them. You know, they may as well just get rid of them out of the back room rather than actually try and sell them to, to people that aren't necessarily interested. So there's this kind of general idea that in the 1970s and 1980s, there perhaps isn't this massive interest in the First World War. But actually, when I started digging, this is when most of the items that I'd kind of used in my research were donated to these regimental museums. So that doesn't really kind of match up, does it? Um, You know, we kind of have this maybe general idea that the First World War isn't particularly interesting, but then families are clearly finding it significant enough to kind of give their personal items to these regimental museums. I wonder whether we could unpack that in in terms of actually what type of items do people donate to museums and do you know why they donated them to museums? So in terms of kind of what people donate, we tend to get a lot of kind of personal papers, um, so photographs, diaries, 
Maps, actually, quite popular. We also get a lot of medals during this period, which I'll talk about in a minute. We get bits of uniform that people have kept hold of throughout the years. We also get weapons, which are illegal to have been held onto. So we kind of get a lot of regimental museums having to, to hand these kind of, you know, First World War um, era guns back to the police, rifles um, to the police, so that they can be de-excavated. And we also kind of get a lot of, again, memorial items. So, you know, next to Kim memorial plaques are really popular. Little printed memorial booklets that kind of have pictures of, of the soldier on the front and maybe a couple of poems inside. But in general, kind of, we do get a lot of personal items. So it's normally these kind of small, easily transported items that means that they've kind of moved around the family for quite a few years that they've moved with them. They normally have a regimental number kind of attached to them somehow, so they're kind of quite personal items. Although that being said, there is an excellent case of a veteran desperately trying to get a regimental museum to take his old camp bed into storage and, and this poor museum kind of, they do take it in the end, but basically it's bunged in a corner and, and never really looked at. So why are they donating these items? Really, it depends kind of who is donating. So we tend to get two main groups who are donating during this kind of period. That's the kind of veteran themselves, the veterans themselves and their kind of family members. So kind of wives, brothers and sisters. And then we kind of get their children are the other second really large group. So kind of in terms of, of veterans, they often kind of want to donate these items because they really think that regimental museums are the absolutely best place for them. They really kind of see this as the item's kind of ultimate home because they were kind of um, given, because they kind of came from the war, because they kind of came from the war in which they fought as part of this regiment, they ultimately kind of see that, that really this is a kind of return home for a lot of these items. Um, and they kind of talk a lot kind of when they try and sell these items almost to the um, to the kind of curators of the museums that they're kind of really trying to say, look, this object belongs with you, you know, because I was kind of such a key part of the regiment, you know, you need this in order to kind of fully tell the regiment's story within your museum space. Their families, kind of more broadly, so kind of wives, brothers and sisters, hmm. they do feel like these items still kind of belong in this kind of home institution, but there's a little bit more to it normally kind of going on. So often um, kind of their, their family, so the widows um, particularly of veterans, they kind of see this museum as a really, really safe space where the items aren't kind of going to get passed on to a family member who doesn't care or might get rid of it or um, might sell it even. And they're kind of quite worried normally about passing these items on to, say, either children or nieces and nephews who might not have an interest in these kind of personal objects. And especially in the case of medals, really kind of might sell this on for profit. But kind of with this generation more broadly, so kind of veterans who survived the war and, and widows whose husbands maybe didn't, we also kind of get a lot of um, tying up loose ends. You know, kind of we are talking about kind of a reasonably elderly generation at this point. And it's quite natural, actually, that because they value these kind of items so much that they want to put them in a safe space and know that it's in a safe space before they die. So there's quite a lot of kind of safeguarding of objects going on here. Now, what was really interesting in your talk, which obviously initiated this, this podcast, was a discussion around some of the issues that arise in families around the donation of items to museum. I wonder whether you could unpack that for me. Yeah, so ultimately there is a lot of fear of items being sold 
um, in particular. Um, so kind of a lot of the donors do write these kind of long letters um, which accompany the items um, and which you can find in the regimental kind of museum archive, which kind of say, you know, look, we, we can't have these sold. They belong either to the regiment or to the family, either or basically. Um, but in order to kind of make sure that they're not going to be sold, we're going to give them to your museum. But what we also get is a lot of disputes over who should get what. And this really comes through quite strongly when we're talking about the second big group of donors, which is the children um, of veterans. Some children of veterans read in the will that their parent kind of wants, you know, medals to be donated to the museum and they just do that. And that's lovely, done and dusted. But sometimes we do get these kind of really big family disputes about kind of where these items should go. So a particularly kind of nasty one happens in the 1970s when a woman kind of donates her father's First World War medals. She thinks that this is fine, she signed them over to the Regimental Museum and nothing more happens until kind of two years later when the museum gets a letter from her brother which says that, that the medals were sent to you against my wishes, I'm their rightful owner because I'm the eldest son, you know, you shouldn't have, have accepted these and, and I want them back. This is sort of left alone, so he keeps writing to the museum um, and he keeps kind of pursuing this saying you know really they're my they're my medals they were left to me I um, I need them basically the museum decides to have a look at the paperwork just to check that everything's in order and they find bizarrely that when the sister donated the medals originally she'd signed her elder brother's name nobody's quite sure why she does this and this is never really resolved she was told that she had to sign her older brother's name instead of hers and so there's a kind of back and forth between the museum the brother and the sister as to who the legal owner should be and this is where the museum paperwork is so important because legally it looked like the brother had handed them over so he could then demand to have them back so after a bit of a back and fourth solicitors get involved it's decided largely by the museum that in order to kind of stop this escalating any further that they'll just simply give the medals to the eldest brother because he was the one who kind of whose name was on this official document the sister is obviously incredibly upset by this um so she brings in solicitors of her own um to kind of try and counteract this and eventually the brother kind of crumbles to this pressure from his sister donates them back to the museum and kind of says, fine, it's done. If it was my mother's last wishes that my sister donate my father's First World War medals to this regimental museum, then so be it. This is one of the more involved cases, but actually it says a lot about um, conceptions of who owns the family archive. So the idea of who can donate what and under whose authority is something that kind of comes through really clearly. And it's never quite clear cut. There is kind of a lot of tension within a lot of families over who actually has the right to donate something and who doesn't. So another example of this, there was a man who died in the First World War. He had no children. His brother did. So I think it was a second cousin removed somehow had, had gotten some of his stuff. The rest of it was um, abroad in Canada, it had been kind of split between two family groups. The woman kind of who contacted the, museum, contacted the museum in the UK, the Regimental Museum in the UK, desperately wanted to submit all of his personal items on the kind of 70th anniversary of his death. The Canadian family members didn't agree to this at all. So in the end, kind of this woman um, just donated the stuff that she had. So there's kind of a split 
family archive there, kind of some of the stuff belonging to this soldier who died is now in a regimental museum in the UK. Other kind of parts of his archive are still kind of in a family, in the family in Canada. So it's these kind of tensions that, that kind of really come out very, very clearly. So if I was going to donate an item to a museum, what issues do I need to be aware of? So it does have to be said there's a general lack of understanding about what actually happens in a museum, which is fine. Why would people know? But it is often the case that kind of when families are trying to donate something, if a museum has a lot of them, they might turn you away. Often this doesn't happen in regimental museums because kind of the um, the regiment kind of trustees want to really kind of try and have good relations. But actually, a lot of the time you, you might be refused if you have a lovely set of medals certainly now. More generally, there can be a bit of a kind of lack of understanding of where to go as well. So, you know, you might have um, medals from the DLI, but you might go to the, you know, Museum of the Northumberland Fusiliers and try and donate them. So often there's kind of a lack of general understanding of kind of quite where the regiment home is. That's fine. Again, normally most people will kind of politely take you over. And again, kind of if you do manage to get through that, you have to um, sign over ownership of your item. So, you know, you kind of legally give it away. You say um, that ultimately this is not yours anymore, that this is now owned by the museum. And that again can lead to some tension. So again, you know, kind of about 90% physical items that museums hold they're not on display, so they're kept really safe in archives, and sometimes kind of they're brought out to be displayed and then kind of put away again. But in general, sadly, just because you've donated something to a museum because of a lack of space, it's not always put on show. And this can really upset families who don't know this going in, and I think that's absolutely right. So I think that a lack of maybe a conversation about what the donation process entails can lead to problems further down the road, certainly. There is kind of one case, again, of a woman donating her father's first world war medals and then she kind of went back to the museum a year later and they weren't on display and she kind of says well can i just have them back actually if they're not going to be on display we may as well kind of keep them in the family so it kind of really depends on whether you want the item to be kind of safe or whether kind of perhaps you want it to to be kept in the family and then seen a lot more so what about from the museum's perspective what issues as a museum curator, would you have in accepting an item? Though largely none. It does have to be said, a lot of the time this process goes wholly smoothly. So this isn't a scaremonger, anybody out there. Occasionally though, what you do have, especially with these kind of longer um, kind of archives, is that a family member might donate something in say the 1970s, and then, you know, someone from a later generation comes back in, you know, the mid 1990s and says, oh, actually I quite like this family item back. Um, Often we kind of get the the children of veterans um, donating items and then actually the grandchildren of veterans come back and say, oh, actually we didn't we didn't kind of know that this existed until a couple of years ago and, and really we value it a lot more than we think that you might so could we please could we please have it back and at that stage the just kind of the the museum has to make a decision on this um so you know everybody has to have a meeting and it has to be kind of decided whether the request can be granted or not again legally the item does now belong to the museum so they have to kind of consider you know is it a particularly unusual item is it very kind of unique does it mean a lot more to the family to kind of basically have it back than it does to us to hold 
hold it. And that's kind of quite a tense thing, especially in regimental museums where, you know, they are reliant on members of the regiment to, to kind of fund them and to, to make sure that the museum is still a kind of living thing. So this is kind of a real issue. But again, you know, there are cases where unfortunately museums have to say no but then there are some quite nice cases where you know they will give grandsons back their grandfather's medals it's wholly dependent on the situation i understand that you're working on a research project to help museums resolve some of the, these legal and ethical issues that you've uh, just talked about can you tell us about this project and why it's important yeah so basically my new research project which is very beginning stages um it's trying to look at these kind of issues and these problems a little bit more in the present day so I'm kind of bringing all this into the 21st century. So largely I think that I kind of want to begin a more public conversation about you know objects and archives and museums kind of more broadly. Um, I think that kind of some of the issues that we've just discussed so things like people kind of claiming ownership of the family archive and this leading to a lot of upset within the family I think that this has to be kind of considered more broadly equally I think that some of the museum stuff is really pertinent so certainly kind of we've talked a little bit about the paperwork side but when an object enters a museum usually um, you know we've got this kind of legal documentation great that's standard what we also normally get is kind of an archive of correspondence between the donator and the museum so we kind of need a broader awareness of the sorts of paperwork that museums keep i think it's often assumed that it's just this legal paperwork but quite often as well it's this correspondence which can be really personal so normally kind of it's in these letters or or now emails where we kind of find this really good information about kind of why an object is so important to a family. It's where families can kind of really say, look, this object is special because, I don't know, it saved my grandfather from a bullet, something like that. And without kind of access to this information, the object itself isn't quite as special. You know, I think that it does have to be remembered that ultimately people are kind of donating these items to museums because they want them to be there especially these family items, I think that it's really clear that the donors see a really kind of important value in putting it into this public space. So if we kind of can't really access these letters and the information contained within them, which since GDPR has been really difficult for researchers and for kind of museum professionals, you know, how much information is being disclosed about an object? What can you then legally do with that? How does this kind of affect the story that you're trying to tell? in the museum. This is all kind of a problem, but equally for the family who's donating, it's also significant that you know exactly how much information is then publicly available to, you know, not only kind of museum professionals, but also people like me who come in and research this. Because again, you know, you can request these documents and they're really kind of good sources of social history, but ultimately, you know, do people donating kind of know that this bureaucratic archive is still being kept and used. So what's your research project going to entail? So my new research project is going to kind of look at maybe difficult family histories or kind of family histories that people sometimes kind of find hard to deal with. It's going to start kind of thinking about, you know, what these are. Is it, you know, a war death in the family? Is it that somebody has a criminal past? You know, how do kind of families tell stories about them? And then how do they tell them to museums? 
questions. It's kind of a dual thing, really. It's basically going to ask how families try and investigate their own family history and how they tell their family history. But then it's also going to question how they tell that to museums. So they can do it through kind of presenting objects, through donating objects. They can also increasingly do it online as well. So kind of with all of the First World War centenary stuff, we've had all of these wonderful websites such as the Imperial War Museum's Lives of the First World War, where people can upload their family story, which again is great because you're getting all of this kind of wonderful information that otherwise would be hidden and now it's public, you know, instead of perhaps the stories associated with the object being lost somewhere in the museum. They're kind of on the internet for everybody to see. This is absolutely amazing, you know, and I think that it kind of says a lot about the centenary initiatives that, that this has happened. But again, are we thinking ethically about this? You know, because some families might upload this information into this really kind of public online space and other family members can get really upset about it again because they don't think that it's appropriate that all of this you know personal information is suddenly kind of all over the web so it's trying to think quite critically about how we can kind of use these family stories in public spaces and really kind of how aware people are of, of what they're kind of doing and who owns the family archive who can tell these stories. So essentially it's about producing practical guidance in a sense so you can resolve some of these personal issues from becoming too personal. Absolutely. <laughs> and finally, Anne-Marie, where can people find out more about your research? You can find some of my past research on the British Library's World War I website. I've written an entry about ephemera. More broadly, I've done a little bit of blogging for people like the Munitions of the Mind blog um, at Kent. But mostly you can find me on Twitter and I'm at amfoster underscore. And the underscore is important because there is a salsa dancer who also uses the same handle. That isn't me. Can't dance. Anne-Marie, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...